Today, we are in part two of our series called The Thrill of Hope. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to Psalm 132. We're going to start there in just a few minutes. Hopefully, you were here last week uh, as as Dwindle kicked off this series for me. Uh, We are looking at certainly this line from this famous hymn, O Holy Night. I don't know what your favorite Christmas songs are. A few years ago, we put out the question, hey, what is your favorite Christmas song on Facebook? And there were two that stood out above the rest, like overwhelming out of my Facebook friends anyway. One of them is Oh Holy Night, this song that this line comes from, and the other one is Mary Did You Know, which is my first favorite Christmas carol and my least favorite Christmas carol, uh, so uh, it, it was pretty funny that it hit both of those. I love Oh Holy Night. I, I think it's a beautiful song. I think it's an amazing declaration. If you're not familiar with it, it actually wasn't written in English. It was written in French, um, and so sometimes you'll find a couple different versions floating around, and that's because uh, they're not one-for-one translations, right? Like they're trying to make things rhyme and flow together rhythmically, and so uh, the next line after a thrill of hope is translated differently. You may have heard it in different translations. The, the one that I've sung the most and that I think of is the a weary world rejoices, um, but there's also uh, a the weary soul rejoices. So I don't know which one you've connected with, but uh, either of those are applicable. But I love this idea that Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, the presence of Emmanuel brings a thrill of hope. I wonder when you've ever experienced a thrill of hope, perhaps at a certain event, at a sporting event, or I know some people went to see like pentatonics last night, and you were super excited for that. A few years ago, we got to go see Trans-Siberian Orchestra, some people from the church took us, and man, there were was, was some thrills. That's a, that's a whole light experience and, and dramatic experience and musical experience. Uh, I don't know when you felt a thrill of hope. Maybe, maybe you felt a thrill like on a roller coaster. Maybe you're one of those kind of people. I used to be a roller coaster person, but I'm 42 now, and I don't know if I'm still that person anymore. I have to, to find out if I still got it. Uh, it's been a while. Of course, my kids are getting old enough. We'll probably be experiencing that with them soon, but we're not there quite yet. I wonder if you remember the thrill of hope when you first met Jesus, when your eyes were first open and you first realized there's a Savior who loves me, who's for me, who wants to rescue me, who wants to be with me. I wonder if you can reconnect with that moment when Jesus first came into your life and you experienced the thrill of hope. It says the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. I don't know about you, but I think we live in a weary world today. Man, we live in a world that's tired. We've dealt with two and a half years of of sickness, of quarantine, of not being able to do certain things, and things are closed, and shortages, and you can't buy stuff, and the mail takes 3,000 years to arrive, and like all this stuff that used to, we used to take for granted. Man, that used to just happen. That used to be automatic and easy and simple. Just isn't that way anymore. We have a world that's weary. And I believe the wearier the world gets, the more primed it is for the thrill of hope. Dwindle shared last week how pop culture is full of these images of, 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 of the one. 
of the Savior, right? Like we see it in Star Wars. They're waiting on this certain Skywalker to arrive and restore balance to the Force, right? Or Matrix. They were waiting for the one, and they discovered it was Neo, and Neo was the one. And we can look through all of these different pop cultural things and dwindle reference some movie that I'm too young to have ever even known existed last week. And so I'm grateful for that reminder that while I'm getting old, I'm still younger than some of you. Uh, So thank you for that, Dwindle. That was a thrill of hope for me. Uh, Restoration right there. But Jesus came to bring hope. But, but, But I think sometimes we miss the context of the weary world that Jesus showed up in. Journey with me for a moment and and, and do a little thought experiment with me. I want you to imagine if you woke up tomorrow and you woke up and it was December the 12th, 1622, 400 years ago, what would the world look like? How different would the world be? Now, the reality is if we woke up 40 years ago, the world would be massively different If we woke up four years ago, the world would be fairly different, though we would still recognize it. 400 years ago, we can't even wrap our brain around how different the world was. Let me just give you a little bit of context. In 1622, the Jamestown colony, the first colony in the United States, had been around for 15 years. The Plymouth colony, the one that is probably most famous that the pilgrims came to, had been around for two years. It started in 1620. They were celebrating the second Thanksgiving in 1622. The first one is in 1621. The world was just incredibly different 400 years ago. Now, let's go the other way. Imagine for a moment that you went to sleep and you woke up tomorrow in the year 2422. What do you think the world would look like 400 years from now? The reality is I don't think we can even conceive it. I don't know if there will be a world 400 years from now, at least the way that we imagine it. Uh, I I believe Jesus will come back in that point in time, sometime in the next 400 years. I could be wrong. Uh, but, But let's just imagine for a minute that he didn't, and you wake up in the year 24, 22. How would you even function? The technology would be so advanced, you would be absolutely clueless. Uh, You would be probably incapable of even getting around, of using transportation, of performing any job function. The world would just be massively different. Some of you see where I'm going with this. Why am I talking about a 400-year gap? Because when Jesus arrived on the scene, or, or more accurately, when the angel first appeared to Zechariah in the temple... I think just maybe a year before the birth of Jesus to announce that his wife Elizabeth was going to be pregnant with John the Baptist, God had at that point in time been silent to the Jewish people for 400 years. We know there's a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but have you really ever thought through how large that gap is? 400 years ago, the United States didn't even exist Right? 400 years ago, the England was the, the preeminent empire on the planet. 400 years ago, the, the international slave trade as we know it, as far as transporting African slaves across the Atlantic, hadn't even really started yet. Had just barely begun. The world was just so, so different 400 years ago. And God was silent for 400 years Now, think through the lyrics of that song, the thrill of hope, a weary 
world rejoices. Can you imagine the exhaustion of the Jewish people? Man, if we go four months without hearing from God, we're desperate, right? If we go four years from out, without hearing from God, we feel like we need to, man, hit a gigantic reset button on life. Four Hundred years with no prophet, no, no miraculous appearance where God stepped back and let his people live on their own because that's what they had chosen that they wanted. See, what happened is the Jews had been carried off into exile. They'd been carried away to, to Babylon, to Persia, to Assyria. They had gone to all these different places depending on their tribe and, and the time. And, and that was God's judgment on them. He said, I'm going to let this happen for 70 years and then I'm bringing you back. And so 70 years later they come back and Nehemiah rebuilds the temple or rebuilds the city and, and Ezra rebuilds the temple, right? And they get all this stuff put back. But God realized but their hearts were still far from him. And so rather than 70 years of punishment, including continuing with the punishment, God just withdrew his presence. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather experience the punishment of God than the absence of God. 70 years of punishment over 400 years of absence and it's to that world that the Messiah arrives. It's to that world that an angel shows up to tell Zechariah, I'm sending the Messiah and your son's going to be the prophet who proclaims that he's here. It's to that world that an angel appears to Mary and says, you have been chosen. You are a favored one. And God is going to give you a son even though you're a virgin. It's to that world 30 years later, or not 30 years later, a few months later, excuse me, that, that angels show up out into a field to shepherds and proclaim he's here. A weary world, an exhausted world, a broken world, a world which I imagined had begun to believe it was all a fairy tale. All these stories of a Messiah, all these stories of rescue, man, that's all they are. They're just stories. Can you imagine what it would look like, what the church would look like 400 years from now if God's Holy Spirit had been removed for 400 years and he didn't speak, he didn't interact? What kind of faith would you find in the church? Probably pretty minimal, I imagine. And then Jesus arrives. God breaks his silence in the biggest way possible, in the greatest way imaginable. He sends the Savior to come and be with them. It's a thrill. Man, you can hear the song resounding. I didn't listen to the song all this week because I didn't have to because it's been in my head. Every time I've worked on this message, thought about this message, it's just been going on and on. I've had a holy night on repeat, so I don't know if next year it'll still be my favorite Christmas song. Uh, like it, it may not be, but it's been going steadily in my head, this thrill of hope. Jesus arrives to a hopeless situation. What we're doing with this series is we're looking back to the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, to the promises that God made to his people and seeing how in Jesus all of these promises have been fulfilled. I want to look today at, at David last week. I just wanted to look at Abraham. Next week we're going to look at God's promises to Mary and Joseph and how God 
met those promises in Christ. Next week, we're also going to take our Christmas communion together. So I hope you can be here next Sunday as we partake of, of communion and celebrate Jesus has come for us. But look with me at Psalm chapter 132. Here's one of God's promises to David. He says, for the sake of your servant, David, this is David writing and, and speaking and inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. Uh, skip down with me to verse 17. It says, here I will make a horn grow for David and set a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant cloud. So God makes this promise that I'm sending a king who's going to reign forever through your line, through David's line, who's going to be the rightful heir to David's throne. That's an awesome promise. It's an encouraging promise. Took a thousand years for that promise to be fulfilled. You think you've been waiting on God for something? You think God's promised you something? It's like God has been three months. God has been 10 years, right? Man, can I just tell you, if God promised it, cling to that promise. I don't care what circumstances say. I don't care how long it may seem to take to arrive. All of God's promises are yes and amen, but they don't always show up in the moment we want them to. The promise to David took a thousand years. That's, that's, that's a number we can't even wrap our brain around if we played that same thought exercise with what the world was like a thousand years ago. Or would it be like a thousand years from now? We, I don't even think it would be productive, right? Like we can't even fathom what it might look like in that it took God a thousand years to come through, through with his promise to David. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. And after Jesus comes and he dies and he raises again, he makes another promise to his disciples. He says, Go and, and wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples do that. And they're waiting in the upper room. And you're probably familiar with the story on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends like a, like a tongue of fire on each of these 120 people. And they begin speaking in other tongues. And the power of God is pouring through them. And, and it spills out into the streets. And a crowd gathers to see what is going on with these crazy people. And Peter gets up and he begins to address the crowd and he preaches and 3,000 people come to Jesus at one moment. But what does Peter preach about? I want to share with you a piece of his message from Acts chapter 2. In verse 29 he says this, he says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Though he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven 
But yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's he's quoting and referencing this prophecy David made. In other words, he's saying, look, David made this prophecy, but he wasn't talking about himself. This was a messianic prophecy. He was talking about Jesus who was going to come through his line. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. Therefore, let all city church be assured of this. Therefore, let all olive branch be assured of this. Let all of the world be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What does Peter do? He goes back to David. He says, look, God made this promise to David a thousand years ago. The Israelites were all very familiar with David. They looked up to David. David was a, a hero in their culture, someone that they admired. He had expanded Israel. He was their warrior king, perhaps their greatest king, and the one who had a, a united kingdom. In fact, after David, very, very shortly, one generation later, after Solomon, the kingdom is divided, and Israel was never the same. And so David was kind of like the peak. He was like the, the, the height of, of the Israelite era. And so they loved David, and they wanted another David to arrive. And Peter says, I got a better David for you. His name's Jesus. And he fulfilled everything God promised to David. David didn't experience the promise, but Jesus has given the promise to you now. So here's what I need you to know this morning. In Jesus, God has kept his promise to you. In Jesus, God has kept his promise to you. God made a promise, and for us, that's, that's easy for us to understand. It's easy for us to grasp because we get to look back to Jesus. The Old Testament saints didn't. They had to look forward to Jesus. They had to hope for Jesus. They had to be anxious that, man, maybe God will keep his promise and fulfill it with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it this way. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, can't even count them all up, right? There's different different Bible scholars who try to list how many promises God made, and they can never narrow down the same number because is this one promise or is this two promises? Like there's a comma there. They they always debate. So there's all these different numbers that are thrown around. So Paul doesn't even try to address that. He says, I don't know how many there are, but however many promises God made, they are all yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, there's this call and response. We're not real familiar with call and response in, in our kind of church, right? More liturgical churches, more old school churches do call and response where, where someone will say something and the congregation will say something back. And so he's saying there's this call and response between heaven and earth where where. God calls out a promise, and Jesus calls out, yes, they're all yes in Christ. And he says, and now the church is responding to it, amen. In other words, the promise has been fulfilled for me. If the promise of Jesus has been fulfilled for you, would you just say amen? Amen. Come on, let's try that again. If the promise of Jesus has been fulfilled for you, will you say amen? Amen. Come on, that's what I'm talking about, church. All of God's promises are fulfilled in us. If we're low on hope today, if we're, man, our, our hope is dwindling, if, if we see hope is low, if we are that weary world today, it's simply because we've allowed our heart to, to drift from the promises of Christ. Because all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. All of them are yes and amen. And we have to continue to bring ourselves back to them because the reality is, man, The world is good at distracting us. Life is good at at taking us to a different place. Our interpretation of prophecy is necessarily rear-looking. It's backwards-looking, right? Um, 
think just about everybody in this room is, is a driver. Uh, in your vehicle, you spend the vast majority of your time driving forwards rather than backwards, right? And yet, while you're driving forwards, if you're a good driver, you're keeping your eyes on your mirrors, right? You're constantly looking in your mirror. You're looking in your rear view. You're looking at your side mirrors. Why? Because what's behind you is necessary information if you want to keep going forward to where you need to go. You see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going with this, church? We've got to constantly be looking in those mirrors to look back at what Jesus did for us, to look back at the fulfillment of God's promises for us, because when we stand on what God's already done, it enables us to move forward. Now, that's a really good illustration that I was excited to share with you, and then Thursday night, I was at Dollar General getting some stuff for our city group Christmas party, and I didn't look in my mirror, and I backed into somebody. So it's a hypocritical illustration for me to use, but I'm using it today anyway, okay? Thankfully, there wasn't a ton of damage done, uh, but our insurance is hopefully handling it, and it sounds like we don't have to pay a deductible, praise God in Jesus' name. Uh, but that's the reality. I didn't take advantage of my mirrors that were right there. But you know what? Some of us aren't taking advantage of the mirror of the Word of God to look back and see. we got to see what He's done, because when we see what He's done, it empowers us to move forward. What is hope? Hope's strength, hope's power. If you've ever been hopeless, you know it feels like I can't go forward. Or maybe in the words of this generation, I, I can't even, right? Why? Because we, we're running low on hope. But God's made that hope available to us in Jesus. We just got to look in the mirrors. And the more that we look backwards, the more we see the promises he's kept, the promises he's fulfilled, not just in Scripture, but now let's bring it to your life. What promise has he made to you that he's fulfilled? What dark situation has he already gotten you out of? What valley of the shadow of death has he already traveled through with you? What footprints did he leave in the sand, right? Like use whatever illustration you like. But God's done those things in our life to remind us of his goodness and to give us hope to keep moving forward. The thrill of hope comes from looking back at what Jesus has done for us. Christmas reminds us that the thrill of hope is found in Jesus. It's not found in Ernest saving Christmas or Buddy the Elf saving Christmas or whatever other Christmas hero has to save Christmas in your favorite Christmas movie. And I'm a Christmas movie sucker, so I'm not trying to knock Christmas movies. But that's not where we find hope. We find hope in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. I want to share with you very quickly as we close four places that we find hope in Christ. Where do we look if we need hope today? Where do we point others who we love who need hope today? Four places that we find hope in Christ. First, we find hope looking backwards to what Jesus has done. We've already kind of unpacked that. We've already talked about that. We look in the rearview mirror and we see what Jesus has done. That's the first place where we can find hope today. Secondly, we find hope looking outward to what Jesus is doing. One of the reasons why it's so important for us to be in, in godly relationship with other believers. One of the reasons why it's so important for us to not isolate and not just try to do this Jesus thing on our own, but we need others around us. Hebrews puts it this way. It says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. 
daily, even more as you see the day of Jesus' return approaching. So what does that mean? It means we're called to encourage each other. How do we encourage each other? Well, a lot of ways. Sometimes we encourage each other because, you know, we see somebody down. Hey, it's going to be okay. And we pick them up. But you know one of the best ways we encourage each other? is with our testimony. It's with our testimony, right? Like, we're, were you encouraged a little bit today when I told you my story of my card that was stolen 25, 30 years ago and how God restored it to me? I, I hope that encouraged you. I, I, what is encouragement? Encouragement is making you courageous. Right? That's what it means to encourage somebody, is to inject courage, to make them bolder, to give them more courage. I hope I was able to encourage you that God keeps his promises, that God rebukes the devourer, that God steps into our financial situations even later on, even when we're not expecting it, even when we don't see it coming. Hopefully that's encouragement. What is that? That's, that's God's design for us to speak into each other's life. Here's the reality. You've got stories too. It's not that I have a story because I'm the pastor and I'm the guy who stands on the stage. I have a story because I love Jesus. Because Jesus has moved in my life and he's done something for me and so do you. And so when you share that story, when you speak out that story, when you say, here's what God did for me, here's where my life was dark, here's where it was bleak, here's where I felt hopeless, but here's what God did in my life. What are you doing? You're bringing glory to God, but you're bringing hope to other people. It's a world that needs hope. It's a generation that needs hope. It's a church that needs hope. We got to share those stories. We got to speak them out boldly and proudly. Here's what God did for me because when we do, we encourage one another. And guess what happens? Now I get to look outward. I don't just look back at what Jesus did. I get to look out and see what God's doing for Miss Susan and what God's doing for Zach and what God's doing for Mark and what God's doing for Annalisa. And I've got all these stories. Man, God's no respecter of persons. If he'll do that for Justin, he'll do it for me. And so we look outwards to see what Jesus is doing. Thirdly, we look inwards to see where Jesus resides. I don't want to overdo this because I've talked about it a whole lot in the last few years. But the coolest thing about salvation to me is that God wants to be with me. He wants to be with me. Now, that's amazing on so many levels. But now let's put that in the context of the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For 400 years, God was silent. For 400 years, God didn't send a prophet. He didn't send an angel. He didn't show up. He just stepped back and he let the Israelites experience the consequences of their decisions. But then, the thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. A baby is born to bring restoration to the people. Not just to restore them to now God can speak to them again, but to restore them to now God can be with them again. What happened in the garden is Adam and Eve got to be with God. They got to hang out with him in the cool of the evening. They got to experience the fullness of God's presence. We can't even fathom what that looks like but because of Jesus we're going to experience it ourselves and through his Holy Spirit he's with us right now today where do we look to find hope we look inside now the world will tell you to look inside yourself and man you pull yourself up and you've got everything that you need and you're capable and that's not the gospel the gospel is you got to look to Jesus but the good news is if you've received him he's Right 
here. His presence is with you, and you get to look inside and realize whether I feel him or not, whether I hear him or not, whether I seem to be experiencing him or not. His promise is he's with me always to the end of the age. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. He's going with me. And so I have hope because Jesus is with me. Amen? Amen. Lastly, we look forward to what Jesus will do. We look forward to what Jesus will do. Last week, Dwindle referenced this Christmas celebration called Advent. Now, I grew up in a strain of Christianity where Advent is basically a calendar with 24 pieces of candy in it. Um, like, I, I didn't understand what Advent really was all about. We didn't celebrate Advent. It's still something I'm not super familiar with. I've been studying it for the last three or four Christmases, and, and I have a much better perspective and understanding of it now than I did for the majority of my life. But one of the coolest things that I think about Advent is Advent is all about the arriving of Jesus. And so it's taught that we celebrate that Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago, but also that the Christmas season, the Advent season, reminds us that he's going to arrive again. That his arriving is not done. There is another arrival. And so we live in this in-between season where we look back to Jesus' first arrival that he came and we celebrate that. But we also look forward to Jesus' future arrival. My dad got saved in the late 1970s at a church called the Church of Blessed Hope. The Church of Blessed Hope, the idea of the blessed hope is Jesus is coming back. My parents got married at that church. I was actually born 42 years ago as a member of that church. I got dedicated to Jesus at that church. There's an imprint in my spiritual DNA of hope. In fact, that church ended up rebranding years later, and we ended up back at it years later, and it was called Hope Christian Fellowship. The DNA of hope. I hope today that you can be a person of hope. You be a person who looks forward to a brighter tomorrow because we serve a God of hope. We serve a God who is good. We serve a God who is for us. And we serve a God who is with us, who is returning for us. And so it doesn't matter how bleak today is. It doesn't matter how discouraging today is. It doesn't matter if you woke up on your birthday and your knee is hurting and you're getting old. There is hope that Jesus is coming back and he's going to wipe away every tear and fix every nay in the name of Jesus. Amen. hope. So we look in all these directions to find hope. I don't know which one you need to look today. I don't know where you need to find hope, but here's four different options for you. But hope is available. Hope has arrived. Hope is here, and it is for us. And lastly, let me close with this thought. Hope is for us, but it's not just for us. Years ago, there was a local Christian rapper named Ty Brazel. He actually filmed one of his first music videos at our old building. So he was just kind of launching his career and getting off the ground. And he's done pretty well for himself. He's kind of gone national and had some success. But he, he had one of his first singles was called Hope Dealer. He said, man, I used to be a dope dealer. But now I'm a hope dealer. And I believe that each of us are created and empowered to be hope dealers. 
man, that we have got hope to share with the world. And I think hope's addictive. I think hope is something that we'll keep coming back for, that people look forward to, that people need more and more of. And so let me challenge you today, this Christmas season of all seasons, be a hope dealer. Man, share hope. Point people in one of these directions to look back to what Jesus has done, to, to look around to what Jesus is doing, to look inside to the presence of Jesus, to look forward to Jesus' return, that, man, we can look around and find hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, I thank you.